So we actually have two scripture passages this morning, but one didn't make it into the bulletin. So Matthew 5, 5, and then John 6, 25 through 35. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then John 6, 25 through 35. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. About 24 years ago, um, Julie and I were traveling overseas, and uh, we spent one of the weeks that we were overseas, we spent in Tunisia. And we had this incredible experience. We had, uh, we had just met a family, and we were staying in the capital of Tunis, and they invited us to their beach home, um, which was about two hours away. The hospitality is way different. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa and then it is in the U.S. Um, so Julie and I went on this cross-cultural experience. We, we traveled um, to their, their home, which was basically a cement slab with four walls, and they invited us in for a day. And one of the experiences that we had with them for that day was a meal. And this meal was completely different than anything that we had experienced here in the United States. Um, we approached this opportunity, you know, seeing all of this through the lens of what we expect to see through our culture, right? That's why cross-cultural experiences are so valuable to have, because they, they challenge your assumptions and they help you see things through, through others' eyes in new ways. And so they um, seated us on the floor, and there was a, a short table that, you know, if you're seated on the floor, you could, would be the right height. They, they spread newspaper um, across the table, and they served the lunch, and neither Julie nor I eat seafood, and it was fish. And the process for preparing this fish was they took it straight from the Mediterranean, put it on a fire, and put it on the table. It had skin, scales, eyeballs, everything. Um, and then they brought out uh, a, a bowl, a big bowl of couscous, and began passing it around. And um, each person at the table would reach in with their hand and scoop a bunch and just plop it down on the newspaper and pass it on to the next person. And in the middle of the table was a common bowl of water uh, that we all shared. And thankfully, because they were honoring us as, a, as folks from the U.S., they gave Julie and I each a can of Coke. And I'm not going to tell you, I've never been so happy to see a can of Coke in my life. Um, 
But there we were, you know, not knowing what to do, um, not wanting to offend, wanting to really learn and experience this, and just trying to watch and figure out what it is we're supposed to do during this meal um, according to their cultural norms. And there was so much that was from my perspective and Julie's perspective through our cultural eyes was wrong with this meal, right? Um, There were no plates. Where were the plates? And where was the silverware? And, you know, your food should not be looking at you, typically in the U.S. when you eat it. Um, All of that was wrong, quote-unquote, from our, our perspective. But, you know... In the midst of that, uh, we had to put aside what was comfortable to us and what was normal for us in order to be able to enjoy the experience and the love and the care. And so when you're having a cross-cultural experience like that, it's this, it's this mixture, odd mixture of emotions. Um, we felt loved and cared for and welcomed and honored, and, and it was just such a, a joy to be there with them in the way that they loved us. But we felt tense and anxious and nervous because we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was right. We didn't want to offend. Um, we were off our game the entire time. There's a, it's this weird paradoxical mix of you know, being honored and, and loving the moment, but at the same time feeling weird and awkward because your assumptions are being challenged. What you know to be normal is being challenged the entire time. You know, and that was just the mundane of eating, not to mention the way that they opened our eyes to their perspectives on the world. They were a Muslim family. They talked to us about faith, um, how they approached their faith. They talked to us about family, traditions, and all these different things that we learned from that one experience. And I shared that story with you because I think when you, when you get into a passage like the Beatitudes, not just the one verse we're going to focus on today, but the passage in general it is a lot like a cross-cultural experience. And I think that sometimes when we approach our relationship with Jesus, we don't realize that it really is a cross-cultural experience to sit down with Jesus. Not just because the, the period that he lived was, was completely different than our modern era, not just because he was from a whole different cultural context, But I just believe that sometimes we approach Christ or we approach the the scriptures and we, we come to them with our own lens of how things ought to be or how we want things to be. And when you read a passage like the Beatitudes, it is so counterintuitive to the way we live our lives right now and the way that our culture teaches us how to live, how to behave, what to believe in, what to value that if we, if we read a passage like the Beatitudes and we don't stop, if we're not challenged by it, if we don't feel just a little bit the way Julie and I felt at that meal, then we're missing something. We really are. And maybe we're reading our culture into it rather than letting the passage read into us. Or maybe we're, we're, we're viewing Jesus through a cultural lens that we're placing upon him rather than sitting back and going, okay, Maybe he's a little bit different than the way I live my life, or maybe he sees things from a different perspective, or maybe he's challenging me to see things differently. And if we don't do that each time we encounter a passage in Scripture, especially one like this, that's so challenging, then I feel like we miss something. Stephen Covey is an author. He has this great quote. He says, We see the world not as it is, but as we are, or as we're conditioned to see it. And I think we do that with the scriptures. We sometimes miss what's, what's there because we're reading into the scriptures the way we've been conditioned to believe about it instead of stepping back and saying, wow, 
What, what is he really saying here? So it's from that context that I want to I wanna start our conversation this morning about this one beatitude, but I don't think you can look at this one passage without contextualizing it within the entire Sermon on the Mount and stepping back from that broader passages in the scriptures to help us understand it. So let's unpack that today. Let's pray. Father, this is your word and it's your message and Lord, we just ask that you would apply it to our hearts in a way that would be new and that each of us need to hear today. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So this particular verse really has two parts. It's not a very long verse, and it's not very um, difficult to understand on the surface, but it very, has very profound and deep meaning. It has a part A and a part B to this verse. And to help us understand what Jesus is talking about here, I want to focus on two main elements that are, that are in the verse. One is this idea of hunger, and the other is this idea of righteousness. Part A, he talks about the hunger. Part B, he talks about the righteousness. And, you know, the, the first three, if you, if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, the first three Beatitudes really dealt with sort of our position, the needs that we have, you know, um, being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek. And this verse transitions into something a little bit different, which is really our desires, our motives, what drives us. So Jesus is making a transition here in the Sermon on the Mount to be able to help us understand at the heart of who we are, what pushes us to do what we do? And, you know, I, I think Jesus is one of the master teachers. He has such a way of using concrete language to set us up and teach very abstract principles. He does it all the time. He does it through stories. He does it through the words he, he chooses. He takes a very concrete thing like hunger to help set us up for a much more profound and abstract concept of righteousness. And so we all know what it is to be hungry, right? Hunger is something we experience on the regular, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, sometimes uh, some of us experience it more than others, and hunger could mean a lot. You know, hunger is, and, and I think one of the reasons that Jesus chose the word hunger here is because it is definitely one of the strongest motives um, that we have as humans, because it's a survival motive. Our bodies hunger because they need to be nourished, and if they're not nourished, we will expire, right, over time. And so it is, a, it is, not, just a, 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 it is not just something we want or something that we desire when it comes to food. It is something we absolutely need. It's a driving action. It's a powerful force. That's what hunger is in our lives and in our bodies physically. It's also a sign of need. You know, I think Jesus is pointing out, he's using the word hunger because he's about to set us up for something we truly need spiritually. Um, we can relate to this need in a, in a very tangible way. You know, daily we feel it. Um, within a couple hours we feel it if we're not nourished enough. You know, I don't know what the hungriest you've ever been um, has felt like, but I recall an experience where we were in a training exercise living off of very meager rations we completed the training exercise and celebrated a group of us by going to a Brazilian steakhouse. Have you ever been there? I'm going to tell you what, our, our driving force was so strong and we ate so much meat and got the meat sweats and pushed right through it. Like, did not stop. I think that place lost money that night, but it was a driving force. Like, we knew we were making bad decisions, but we could not stop. 
right? It was that good or that, that much of a need. Our bodies needed protein that bad. We paid the price the next day, that's for sure. But, um, but if you wanted to rephrase this passage, you could say things like, blessed are those whose driving motive is blank. Blessed are those whose most powerful force that drives them to action is blank. Blessed are those who crave blank. Blessed are those who want it so badly that they cannot help themselves from taking action. I think we could rephrase this with those words to help us understand just the depth of the word hunger and what that means to us physically and how Jesus is trying to make the transition to what it means spiritually. Hunger is a sign of life. If you're hungry, you're healthy, right? You know, doctors will ask that question, you know, how's your appetite been? Because if you don't have an appetite, that could be an indication that something is wrong. But what we hunger for is where Jesus wants to transition to in this passage. Because hunger can be just as destructive as it is constructive. If we hunger for the wrong things, if we hunger for the wrong types of food, we're going to have health ailments. If we hunger too much for the wrong substances, that can be destructive. If we hunger for the wrong types of relationships, that could also have a a devastating effect on us. So it's worth from time to time stopping and asking ourselves, being self-reflective, what is driving me? What is my motivating force? What do I hunger for right now? I think that's why Jesus uses this word. You know, I told you Jesus is the master at setting us up with concrete examples so he can make a profound, deep spiritual connection. You know, in the uh, scripture reading, we heard a a portion of John 6. So what happened in John 6 before that passage was read is the familiar story of Jesus feeding the multitudes, you know, with five loaves of bread and two fish. You know, that story where people had this real tangible, concrete need of physical hunger and Jesus feeds them, has, does this incredible miracle, and isn't it amazing, and everyone's blown away that he does it, the disciples are blown away by it, and he meets this real concrete need, right? Well, we'll see in a little bit in this message this morning how Jesus used that concrete need to set up the disciples for a much deeper message, much like he's doing in this passage here. So let's talk about that deeper message that Jesus is trying to get across. And that is this idea of what we should hunger for. What should be our our driving force? What should be our motivator? What should we be self-reflective about from time to time when we ask ourselves, what am I hungry for right now? What do I really want out of life? And in this passage, it's very simple. Maybe. (laughs) It's righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. What in the world does he mean by righteousness? Such a loaded term. Used a lot in scripture. Probably if we asked 15 people in this room, we'd have multiple definitions of what we believe righteousness means. I think we can safely say that embedded in this idea of righteousness is a hungering for God himself like a deeper relationship with Jesus. I think that's pretty safe to say. It's pretty clear all throughout the scriptures that that's a part of it. 
But I also think that righteousness isn't just about rule following, because I think some of us would say, well, it's about, you know, being right, doing what's right, not doing what's wrong. It's black and white. It's real simple, right? Follow the rules. The rules are very clear. But I think it's much more than that. It's much more than morality. It's much more than a black and white rule following. I believe if we look at who Jesus is, the way he interacted with us, various passages in scripture, what we'll see is that righteousness is really about having a heart that desires what's good and just. And the reason hungering for righteousness is important is because the reality is, ever since the book of Genesis, stuff is not right in the world. And stuff needs to be made right. And the reason we need to hunger for good, that which is good and just, is because there are things that are not just. And there is evil that does persist, both in, in the world and in our hearts. Even Romans, I love Romans 8, through 24, because it's not just us that experience the effects of this, but all of creation has been, has been groaning and waiting for this world to be made right. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Righteousness is about redemption. It is about what is wrong being made right and working towards that. This progressive work that God has been doing ever since the first uh, ever since the fall, all the way up to the present time, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is the work of his people collaborating with him to make this world better and to make it right until he comes again. This is what we've been calling shalom. You know, one um, pastor refers to it like this. He says, consider the world as if it's like this giant quilt. And there's tattered frayed ends to the quilt and there's pieces of the quilt that are torn and that need to be patched up and you know this idea of righteousness and redemption and and our role in it is like going to those parts of the quilt that are torn and tattered and 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 working there to repair them and to restore them that's this idea of righteousness and that's why this this passage i believe should challenge us to our core And that's where we should really pause to examine ourselves and how we may have been conditioned by our culture. I think there are parts of this world that are upside down and maybe we're contributing to it. And maybe there's more we can be doing to work to overcome it. You know, our culture encourages independence, strength, power, advancement, grabbing life by the horns and getting everything you can out of it. Whether or not we, we believe in those concepts ourselves, they're, they're sort of unconsciously infused into who we are. And so when you read a passage that talks about things like poor in spirit and meekness and mourning and mercy and being pure in heart and being peacemakers, These are not terms that we hear over and over again in our culture. These are not concepts that are talked about on the regular, on a daily basis in our culture. Those other concepts are. Could you imagine um, this being someone's political platform? It would never fly. 
because it's so different from our culture. And so when we read it, we should feel a little bit like Julie and I felt when we sat around that table in Tunisia. We should feel warmed by it. Wow, this is, this is, this is interesting. I like this notion of peace. I like this notion of mercy. But we should also feel a little bit confused. But wait, what am I investing my life in? Is my life really about these concepts? Or, or am I being swept away in the current of what our culture is telling us to do? Our culture values personal ambition, personal goals, taking care of self at all cost. But what Jesus is calling us to in this passage, and not just this one verse we're looking at today, because this idea of righteousness, I think, is, is really defined in the verses that come before and the verses that come after. But Jesus is calling us to a much different way of living. He's calling us to think much more holistically about seeing the wrongs of this world made right. And the question is, what will that demand of us? Unfortunately, I'm not going to give you a scripted list of answers, but I will give you some things to consider. Because I think each and every one of us need to wrestle with this point on an individual basis to understand which parts of this giant quilt we need to be a part of repairing. Based upon where Christ has, has placed us, the situations that we're in, and what our circle of influence is. It's not quite so clear. It requires the deep thinking and the wrestling that come from a cross-cultural relationship with somebody you love. Man, that sounds a lot like a relationship with Jesus to me. So if you go back to that passage in John 6, where the disciples had this very concrete, tangible experience of seeing Jesus physically feed This is the advice that he gives to his disciples as he goes back in John 6. You know, the disciples are kind of blown away by this. And Jesus says in 26, Very truly I say to you, you're looking for me not because you saw signs that I performed, but because you ate and you had your your fill. You guys want something very tangible from me is what Jesus is saying. He says, but don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. That's this notion of hungering after righteousness. And then the disciples want a very concrete answer. What must we do to do the works of God? Just give me a list. Just give me the list and I'll do it. And a lot of us are like that. That's another part of our culture, right? Make a list and buddy, I'll check that off, man. I'll feel good at the end of the day too. And that is not how a relationship with the Lord works. And Jesus responds by talking to them about belief and faith. It's not a list. And then he comes to the very end of the passage and he says, I am the bread of life. It's me. That's what you're seeking. That's what you should be hungering for more than anything else. And if you come to me, you will not be thirsty and you will not be hungry. Jesus never says, if you come to me, I will tell you exactly what to do next. What he's setting us up for is is experiencing him in relationship. And through that relationship, having our hearts and minds changed and transformed, if we will allow ourselves to be challenged by his word in a new way, by taking off the glasses of our cultural norms, setting them aside, and saying, Lord, let me see you for who you are in the way that you are, not from the way I have been conditioned to see this world. And it's not just the world that conditions us this way. The church does it too. Because we have a tendency to take the culture and lay it over the scriptures. 
So we should constantly be challenging the assumptions that every person who comes to this pulpit, we should challenge the assumptions of those that we interact with on a daily basis and not allow ourselves to be so influenced by our cultural norms or the conditions that we are raised in to miss the deeper message of the scriptures. So how do we do that? Well, maybe we should start trying to see things through the eyes of others. You know, when we're sharing our faith and, and talking to others about Christianity, maybe the way to start is as asking the question, not, not with taking the truth right to them, right? You know, we're, gonna, we're just going to lay the truth on them, but maybe the better way to do it is, I wonder how the, what they've been taught about faith. Trying to understand their perspective. What, what do you think they know about Jesus? Or what have they been taught about the Bible? What misconceptions do they have? Trying to understand their perspective first before bringing the gospel directly on, on top of that. You know, why, why are there certain people who are unwilling to entertain a conversation about Christianity? Could that be the way that we've behaved? Could that be the way that we're talking about it? Is there a different way to think about this? Is there a different way to embrace righteousness that invites empathy and understanding of the other perspective? Maybe it's thinking critically about what's happening in our community the way people are being treated, the, the way they've been treated historically, the way that, that policies are written, what policies are in place. Maybe, maybe there's some work of righteousness that needs to be done in the institutions, right? Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe with yourself, the question is, where are you harboring resentment and ill will and hatred and hurt? Where are you not being open to mercy and peacekeeping? as the Beatitudes talk about. The questions to ask ourselves when we come to a passage like this is not what do I do next, but I think it's more of an inward reflection. Where are you focusing your time and energy and what is motivating you? What is your driving force? What do you want more than anything else? And are you aligned with this concept of shalom, this idea of redemption of the entire world? What is your circle of influence? And how are you making things right within that circle of influence? Your family, your relationships, your workplace. How do we start there with taking the concepts of the Beatitudes and putting feet to them and hands to them so people can experience just a little bit of what this shalom would look like? Just a little bit, even if they don't know the Lord yet. Give them an experience of shalom so they will want more. There's a um, great proverb in French, and it doesn't translate word for word, but it's this idea of your appetite grows as you eat, or your appetite grows while eating. You know, if you are one of those who just doesn't hunger for righteousness, maybe it's just a season of life that you're in. Maybe the thing to do in that situation, in addition to prayer and seeking the Lord and inviting, just being very upfront with him about where you're at, and asking him to give you that hunger. But maybe it's to start doing some of those things and getting involved in some of the activities and having those conversations where you're listening to others and trying to see the world through their eyes. Maybe that will invite some hunger. Because when you hear people's stories about the ways this world has done them wrong, you have a whole different way of understanding what Christ is talking about here. But if we insulate ourselves from that, then we're really not going to hunger to see things made right. We're just not. 
we're going to kind of default into this, you know, I'll just do what's best for me and I'll set my goals and I'll work real hard to attain them and I'll check off my list. But I would invite you to engage in those parts of the quilt that are tattered and torn. Maybe, just maybe, that will invite some hunger. And then we'll get to see Christ really do some good work. And that's really good news. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I admit that most of the Beatitudes I don't understand completely. I kind of surface level understand and um, I'm trying to understand. I, I know I can see the world. I know that, it, that, that the world needs righteousness. It needs mercy. It needs peace. Um, I also know, Lord, there's a, there's a lot of good. Um, there's a lot of good because of what you're doing both through good and evil people. Like somehow you accomplish your good. I, I don't understand that either. It's confusing. But um, Father, I pray that for each of us that are here, that are hearing this word, that are striving to work towards you and with you, Father, that you would teach us what it means to hunger for righteousness and you would teach us to how to be a part of your redemptive work in this world. Both on the individual level where people connect with you and come to know you and believe in you but also in more of a communal way. Um, Lord, through the institutions, the policies, the structures, uh, that even those would reflect your justice, your grace, and your love. Lord, give us eyes to see all that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.